Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 32nd uh, Design Exec Club Town Hall. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of the Design Exec Club and the Driven by Design Award programs. Joining me are some of the smartest people I know in the Asia market. And we're going to be talking about the six months behind us and also this uh, the 12 months ahead of us and what those new possibilities are and how do we go and elevate the uh, commercial opportunities and our colleagues who are in the market here. Um, the first person I'm going to head off with is I'm going to go across to you, Julie, and uh, let's have a you, – you've had a look at what's been happening from a relationships perspective, and you've been talking about how it's actually about fostering and extending the relationships. Tell us a bit about that, and I'm also going to ask you some questions about have you been able to start new business relationships throughout a period where it's been – virtual contact rather than physical? Um, okay. I've run a business that has solely worked around the ethos of relationships and how important relationships are, and that's not only just client-based, it's supplier-based, it's architectural partners, it's whoever you source from, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, the bottom line is we only like to work with people we really want to um, go have a drink with or have dinner with, um, and the chemistry has got to be there. But the relationships I've seen in the last 12 months, particularly during COVID when we really have had to rely on this virtual human relationship, which is different. Like before I would jump on a plane and go meet you um, or ring up and go and have dinner or something, that's been really difficult the last um, six to eight months to, to even do that. So building relationships on, you know, a forum like this, for example, has um, has been different and it's been a learning curve for everyone. It's not impossible to build, build a relationship on this, but it's taught me how important the core of relationships are um, and how we actually do need each other. Um, when Certainly when there was a big stress as to how our businesses were going to be during, during the height of COVID, were we going to survive, were we not? Um, and particularly as business owners or higher higher level management people, it's you know you can't really bounce these ideas, these thoughts, these feelings to to your team members because you got to keep that positive attitude happening. And so you speak to your peers like each other here, and it's the real you know the real conversations. Like I think I've been on that many forums with Richard, and there's been some real conversations the last seven months they're not all necessarily good you know the, the realities of it there was there's been a lot of downs as well but being able to rely on each other and troubleshoot with each other and bounce off each other has been really important um, and I think when we've been super busy in the past and we haven't had to rely on it we just get on with it whereas we've really had to rely on it the last month I think. And I think, you, Julie, you've seen my Van Bergen project and uh, viewers uh, will put a link in for this. But uh, I, I was trying to work out how I didn't just have a transactional relationship or business context relationship. I wanted to be able to go and express part of who I am and the things that were happening in my world. And I found by buying the van, going off and doing a photographic project of 100 sunrises in a row, regardless, rain, hail, shine, and sharing that with people gave me a, a conversation which was more multifaceted than just we're going to talk about a town hall, we're going to be talking about your design studio, we're going to be talking about your project. We got to talk as humans and we got to talk as people and and people shared to me, you know, some very, very special things. Actually, yesterday was my birthday. I went, thank you for the uh, uh, gifts and all of that, everybody. But yesterday was my birthday. 
And yesterday afternoon also was the fifth anniversary of a friend's daughter who unfortunately left us way too early. And I knew that there was a beach where my friend's daughter loved to go. So I took the van there and I took a couple of glasses of rosé and I took some photos and I shared it. And what was interesting was not only was it special to my friend who's in Barcelona, but it was also really special to a lot of other people because this eked about humanity and about values and purpose it didn't just actually say, I'm here to go talk about business or I'm here to go actually do some Instagram shots. And getting more dimensions about each other as humans is such an important thing that we go do in business. Richard, I want to go across to you because I know that purpose has been an area that you've been focusing on where both um, with your own work and with your clients' work. Um, give us a bit of an insight what you've seen over the last uh, six months and what you think the 12 months ahead has. Well, that's a really that's a very interesting question, Mark. I think one of the things we think, need to consider when we're looking at this is that we're seeing it through our own eyes and feeling it through our own senses. So we respond to things as we are ourselves. So I think this is very important. But first of all, I think I, I, because I'm a business guide designer, I see perhaps potentially two things here. One's personal in terms of like what's important to me and my family and what I'm about as a person. And then secondly, from a business point of view, I think is what's probably becoming more important as businesses have disengaged from hubs and uh, little campfires is, you know, what, could, what, what complex problem do I solve in a business sense? So I think there's been a bit of a focus on that because people are trying to find their own sense of reality, but how do they fit within the bigger sense of reality in terms of a community, business or otherwise? I think that's very important. And underpinning all that, the hidden thread that links that all together and connects with what Julia's talking about is empathy. I think we're sort of much more aware of that. But the funny thing I think is happening here is that it's been forced upon us to actually start talking and dealing with our feelings. Uh, you know, when we come to a city or when we're talking to people, and you just mentioned your personal policy there about the, the sunrises, how do you deal with that uh, aspect of our being, which is our subconscious, that we haven't been prepared to or maybe able to, to, to recognise and adjust to. I think the big thing that, that's going to happen now, once you start having that and people are feeling that, what are the leaders doing about this? They're in their offices, they're in their suits, they're, but nothing's really changed for those guys. They're all on their full salaries. You know, I'm talking about the government and people in top, in top level. How are they going to readjust for the adjustment that has to happen because their people are no longer going to operate within the same ecosystem that was before. I think this is this is really going to challenge a lot of business and also provide huge opportunities for creative people and imagineers to help uh, bridge that gap between what was and inspire for what could be. That's my passion about that. Yeah, and, and I think we've seen over the last you know, 10, 20 years that the necktie has has kind of diminished in its its prevalence in, in all parts of business. People might have been able to work out how can they open up a bit. And as we're trying to get that more, the connection between casual, creative purpose, is the necktie actually something which is actually closing us off or and having an open collar shirt as you as you've got Adrian, does that open us up a little bit more? I, I think you know that when it comes to and you're gonna laugh at this, when it comes to fashion and the way we turn ourselves out, that says a lot about where we're trying to go with our values and our purpose. Um, I'm stuck in a t-shirt. I've been that way for a long time and I'm very comfortable in them. But um 
I do want to go across and, uh, Adrian, have a, have a little bit of talk about you're seeing in the hospitality world how the purpose of gathering together for a meal and sharing a meal, it got significantly interrupted during COVID and then the hoteliers have begun to find new strategies of how do they give people these fantastic human experiences but also deal with food safety and patron safety. What, what are you finding? Sure. Well, I would like, at the end of this, I would like to just uh, carry on from what Richard was saying, but kind of is in, in, in a subject in between both of, you know, the, the value that conversation has and it goes on to the value that the dining experience has. Obviously, travel has been seriously restricted. We can't go anywhere. Hotels aren't full as they used to be. And in some countries, they're picking back up again. And I hope Victoria uh, swiftly gets back on that um, steep rise to success again. In hotels, there's been a lot of concern about the shared dining experience, particularly in a breakfast setting or in a brunch setting where you have a lot of people milling around, carrying plates of food. And the operators have reached out to us and said, we've got to stop this. When we come back online after COVID, we have to have responded or have a response plan of how we can serve our guests safely. So we're currently developing a prototype for Marriott for one of their premium brands, and it will be rolled out over Asia. And it's an all-day dining concept that is designed as a restaurant. It does transform for breakfast into a buffet, but it's select buffet. Everything has to be individually portioned, closed, or handed to you. They have turned and pivoted literally overnight on how they are planning to uh, respond to COVID. And I, we've also had that here in Hong Kong, where I'm based. Um, obviously, the city has been very strict in terms of dining restrictions. So there is no longer buffet brunch. You have family style. So you're, you're going in your table of four or six, as we were recently allowed. Then the food comes to you, but it comes as a beautiful bounty of food presented to you on the table. It's the best of everything from the buffet offer. And you share with your group. And I think this is a new, it's kind of returning in a way to what we had before the rise of the buffet. Um, we're dining together as a group. We're together. Um, we have a shared dining experience. Nobody's getting up from the table to go and get some more crab legs. Um, and then we also have the social conscience of less food waste. We can control the portions. We feel a little bit better about our social conscience. And this is coming in very, very fast from our operators. Also, there's a, a comment for no uh, communal check-in. So we're currently working on a Fairmont project. There will be one or two cashiering desks. Everything else is going to be mobile or self-check-in. So I think the operators are there. They are aware of their guests' concern about being in a shared communal space and how can they mitigate that contact. So it's interesting for us because I think that going back to the restaurant experience, I think that shared dining will be great because it's like being together around a table again. You know, you're going to be there. There's all this beautiful food in front of you. It's plated well. You know, when you go to a buffet, you kind of have everything piled on your plate. looks a bit ugly. At least it can be, there can be theatre in the presentation and there can be a flourish of service. So I think that's a, a return and an opportunity for an exciting dining experience. And, that, and that's great to see because, you know, what I like about that is that they, they've worked out what was the, the core essence of people coming in for their dining experience. And then they've said it's different, but it's the same. And, and so we're trying to make sure that you're getting the, 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 the shared meal moment and we're going to work out how to get some theatre moments, the production values up, 
and solve the, what we can't do and work out what we can do in there. Michael, I, I want to go across to you to talk about how in the digital transformation um, world with IBM and with, and with your clients, you know, we used to know there were some golden paths that we could take. If you, if you went and did this particular project, you were going to get further down the track. And there was this, this was the golden path, there's the silver, the bronze, and just the one you don't want to do. Are there golden paths that your clients are seeing or is it that nobody's got the crystal ball to work out exactly what to go do? I think one thing everyone, every enterprise has faced in the last six to nine months to 12 months is that nobody knows what's the answer is. So um, the golden path is pretty much dead. But then one thing really good came out of it is um, I think everyone's a little bit more open-minded now and a little bit more willing to, to, to experiment, to prototype. I mean, like Adrian was just mentioned about like these different hospitality clients, different sort of uh, businesses trying new ways to embrace the challenge that they are facing. You know, they're testing out, you know, whether it's going to be a, a, a new form of a la carte <laughs> a dining experience or, you know, also, you know, how, how we connecting with each other, like what, what Julia and Richard was just touch on, right? Like what would people really like to, to experience when they connecting with one, one another? Can we reinvent the way that we, we, we uh, reach out to each other or, or even listen to each other's um, pain points and stories and their, their needs? And I think this past year has been really forcing everyone to be um, not just individuals, but also enterprise and companies to be a little bit, a little bit more, I guess, honest about the challenge that they are facing and also a little bit more honest about the fact that nobody has the answer to it. So mm-hmm. which this shift of a mindset allow everyone to, to give any sort of solution a, a bit of a try. But of course, that also can sort of come with uh, another challenge is how do you budget for it? How do you budget for this kind of short-term visibility of the future? Um, but I, I, I just see it as an opportunity for enterprise to, um, to dip their toes into this new water. And, and I think that, that I love that reference over the short-term visibility. And one of the considerations I've had that COVID has introduced, it's like a fog event. Mm-hmm. So if an, a new wave came into Hong Kong for COVID, it's like a fog comes over the city and nobody expects the city to operate the way it normally does. And the moment the fog is lifted then it all goes back to pretty much how it was. A few things are late, a few things need to be rescheduled. And that's also what what we've seen in Wuhan. You know, the fog came down on Wuhan very, very dramatically, and then that fog has lifted. The same thing's happened in Melbourne. Now we're down to uh, more than 28 days of zero cases. There There are no active cases of COVID in the state. And everyone's back to, come on, let's go out. Let's go actually get back in our offices. Let's go and do what we were doing. And I think I think that that visibility brings in the concept of fog. And nobody knows what to do when fog comes. As a sailor, if fog comes, you just stop. You don't, you don't expect to go through it. You know that's dangerous. You don't expect to go back. It's just hold your position. But we know we can't do that forever. And so that interests me, the people that are working on projects, but there isn't a clear sight to what's actually ahead for them. So therefore that makes it difficult for set budgets because normally budgets are that there's future revenues. We can always have the expenditure, but if we don't match the expenditure against future revenues, then we're not getting a return on investment. And so, Adrian, I think there in the hotelier space that 
to go and actually be thinking about, well, we need to actually build some new patterns of service delivery and different experiences, that's going to change depending on whether there's a heavy fog in the in the in that market or not. Is that something that's coming up where you're being asked for you know multiple modalities depending on how the hotel's operating? We are. We are. In terms of the interior design, the you know the the reality of designing the space, it's not so much that we have to completely change the layout of a hotel lobby, for example. It's how we think about the flow and the experience, and it's really the human engagement that we have to consider versus engaging with the built environment. So as long as we can have a, a space or an, an interior architecture that can allow for change and can adapt easily then it's a success, but it's knowing that that's on the cards. It's knowing that that space has to have a flexibility to it and not being rigid. So um, we've already seen that self-check-in even at airports, et cetera, is becoming more commonplace. It's allowing for that. So we don't focus on the reception desks as the feature. We focus on something else uh, and how we would anticipate the guests moving through the space. So it's really thinking ahead um, and allowing for the space to be flexible. So in terms of, it's not really that much nuts and bolts as it would be, it's more, how would we want to operate that? How does that flow? Yeah, and and Richard, how about for you? What are you seeing in that idea of people? Obviously, if you've got a purpose and you understand what your purpose is, that guides you one way, but are there different ways that people execute and express that purpose? What are you? What, what are your thoughts? I don't know why they contribute to what uh, Adrian was saying. I've got to say, Adrian, you're so eloquent. You articulate it so beautifully. I mean, you know, obviously your clients love you because you just packed it all up beautifully for them. All I got to do is sign here and get on with it. So I love that. You I will bring you in as my my um my my proposer and seconder for any client deal. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to say though, um, it's important to I think when we're talking about this, we talked about the fog mark before. We would expect, and, and this is with great respect to, to you guys, uh, the interior designers, architects, etc. We would expect that things are rephrased, framed all the time. I mean, that's part of the dynamic of being uh, touching base, what society's moving, and, and the latest things, and the furnishings, and fittings, and food styles, etc. I think that is something that we can tangibly see. I think what you're talking about, Adrian, also means that people's attitudes and way of operating has to actually uh, be modified. So what Michael was talking about, this uncertainty, I think comes with respect. So we have to respect each other. So therefore we don't rush in, we need to measure. But to do that, we also need guidelines of social etiquette and things like that to happen. But I think the bigger picture here is how do you do that change transformation in, in other industries, corporate, manufacturing, day-to-day work, which is not an expected uh, role. You're expected to do the same old, same old, and you start a job at whatever and you end up and you work towards your retirement. Now things opened up. There's not that sort of pathway anymore. So businesses have to reshape their purpose in a much more philosophical and meaningful way as opposed to just the delivery of product or service. Mm. So that to, me is, that to me is the big challenge and it's not going it's, it's, it's to be forced upon organisations because of, of their employees and the people and their customers but it's not something I, I think that people, that the organisation's infrastructure is really probably ready for, for the change. I ser- that's certainly the area I'm very interested in. So, Richard, I'll, I'll, Julie, please go. I think this is where we will see where the really good leaders are and where those who need a little bit of help along the way. I mean, it's, it, it's human nature for all of us to follow. 
But when someone does something, we we tend to that leads. We we tend whether we agree with it or not, we we tend to follow. I mean, you see it. You see it at, um, when you walk into airports, you know, in the days when we used to be able to go to the airport. And, I mean, there are moments where, oh, that person must be going on to the flight to LA. There's probably about 20 flights to LA. And then you just start following. Don't worry that you're probably going on the wrong flight, but you start to follow, you know. <laughs> and and I think with, with um, designing for the future or whether it's hotels or restaurants or corporate or workplace or whatever, it's the re-education comes from good leadership um, and and flexibility. Um, I think before, you know, typically of, of humans, we are rigid in many ways. We want flexibility, but we operate better on a on a regime every morning. We wake up at a certain time, have breakfast at a certain time, we catch the train at a certain time, whatever, we get to work. You know, we tick off the things off our list, we finish another day, we go home. It's That's generally a normal person's life. And whereas now it's, there, there are rigid things to life like for example we can't just go to the local restaurant and expect to get in um, we have to make sure we get a reservation um, and then once we're there we have to check ourselves in it becomes a process and patience in terms of time which is exactly what you said um, Richard like you can't we can't expect to just rush into anywhere and and expect service and um, and demand service it's there's a different mentality has to come into play um, moving forward because COVID's not going away if we think even at the moment where um, particularly here in Australia where we've got it really good and so has Hong Kong but in the bigger nations they're really struggling it's clearly not going away so we're, there will be peaks and troughs that's my prediction moving forward. So I, I want to go in there a little bit about the leadership and the culture and people's vested interests mm. in that. One, one of the things, and Michael, I think you would have seen this a lot with digital transformation projects. Often it's not the leadership, you know, the senior C-suite leadership. They've got a vision. You've got the operational staff, but they, they want to actually do something in a progressive way. It's these, the middle band who actually have invested positions. And if you can't work out where the next option that looks after their their imagination of what their next five years are going to be, they're just going to fold their arms and say, no, we don't want to do this. So, so you know, I find that very interesting about people trying to adapt. And uh, and I I know in the fintech market, it's actually referred to as the fintech donut. The, the reason banking is hard to change is not the boardroom, it's not the C-suite, and it's not the um, front of house staff. It's the middle management, the middle, they're the ones who are reluctant to change. And I wonder there when you've got things such as those golden paths that you're trying to explore, are people more now open to all change or are they still holding back on some of their previous imagined futures? I actually wouldn't look at it just as the middle part, uh, middle management and the middle okay. layer. I, I sort of touch on the fact, you know, it's about honesty. And I think this is um, this is some this honesty is forcing it being forced by COVID nineteen on every different level of, of of an organization, on leadership, on middle management, on 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 the working level as well. It, this honesty is being forced on them to to really question every single level, question everyone on the fact that are they willing to accept change. Because I think what Julia and Richard touch on is, is, is really interesting is I think what COVID-19 is clear 
to point out to, to every, every single person is that there's two types of people. One type who's completely ready to embrace this and, and see it as an opportunity to, to change. And then there's another type of people who's keep asking, when are we going back to normal? When are we changing back? When are we, you know, when can we plan our budget again, just like what we, how we had, you know, been doing it for the last 10, 20 years. You know, how can we go back to the, the retail model that we have been doing in the last 10, 20 years? And it's, it's, it's not just the middle level or the leadership, it's every single level. You know, on the working level, there will be people looking forward to go back to the normal that they can just, you know, go back into the same job yeah. in a, same robotic style that they they can just be comfortable in their own you know area own own way of working but then that's just not going to be and then i think this this is going to be it it is forcing every single person to reflect on their on their purpose reflect on their own way of working the organization got to reflect on are they adding real value to not just the customer, but also to the internal staff, to the internal culture? Um, are they changing in the right direction? And these, these are all triggers that individual levels and also individual um, entity and companies got to really look at when they're trying to identify the future, different, different, different paths to the different future. And I, th- and I think... You've eloquently identified that there's people who are very invested in the status quo. Mm -hmm. There are people who are very adaptable to status next and that they want to get to the future faster. And I think all of us on this call are probably in that. We want to get to the future faster. But last week when we did the town hall in in the US market, we were talking about the 70-plus million people who are actually wanting to stay in the status quo, but they want the status quo to go to the past. They don't want it to go to the future. Yet they want it to be a great country which their grandfathers created, uh, but their grandfathers are actually progressive people who were trying to get to the future faster, but they think there's greatness by going backwards. And 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 so that there's a diagnosis there about people wanting to feel certain and certainty was something that they knew and that the future keeps changing on them or next is different. And and so we've we've got this tension in there about we know that we need to do things differently, as Adrian, you've spoken about, as simple as food services are being done in a progressive way. It isn't they've tried to go back and say, well, we'll make it just like it was because there's issues there. They've worked out how to progress. And I think that's what we do all the time is progress. I think it's human nature as well, right? Yeah. I think this is where, though, we can bring in the concept of the DNA and that the DNA exists previously, now, and into the future. It's actually how you adapt that DNA to moving forward and you bring people along with you as opposed to separating them from you. So that is, the art, of, uh, that is the art of, you know, brand change. I mean, the more things change, the more they remain the same. You know, that's just a French, that French phrase. I think that's that's but that requires what Michael's talking about. There's an understanding of the of all the parts, how do all the parts fit together and bring everyone along. And there will always be in change people that will will not be able to move forward. I mean, again, it's a it's a human nature thing, but that understanding of what was the core to start with, why did it start, how does it create it, and how can you evolve that? That's that's such a fascinating subject and, and brand's all about that. And, and change management as well. 
yeah. change management the next four or five years is going to be uh, yeah. playing such a huge role as we changing our service, changing our process, changing brand, vision, changing culture, and the experts who can help us to reach this kind of alignment within an organization. You move everyone along with that. Those changes is, is going to play and, a huge and that, role. And that, Michael, that's where the word even more designer evolves into something greater. You know, change manager, a, a catalyst. You know, a, that type of thing where you you take on a bigger, bigger yeah. of activity. And, and it's interesting you touch on uh, designers as well because there are also a lot of designers hoping to stay in their own very limited ver- vertical definition of what design is all about. But then with all this more dynamic and complex enterprise, the role of designers is changing and evolving as well. And we've got to think wider than what we, you know, normally just going to work on. So, so Michael, I wanted to, because I know you talk a bit about um, augmented reality, virtual reality, and also AI. Now, the idea of augmented reality and virtual reality, if our reality has changed so much in the last 12 months, does the definition of augmented reality change as well? So if the fundamental reality changes, what does augmented reality mean now that reality has changed? I, I like how you, you, you're looking at it from uh, almost like a non-technology perspective on what augmented tech, uh, reality is all about. Because yes, with new definition and, and new perspective, we are actually actively augmenting our own realities and I think well it's you gotta keep an open mind and, and keep evolving that definition of it. Yeah you would use the fallback you would use the fallback of the UX. It's all about the user experience, isn't it Michael? Yeah you know, it depends doesn't oh, matter yeah, yeah. reality you're in. You know it's your, yeah. it's your how you react react to it. I mean it's such a fascinating subject. So, so then, everything is lived by experience, right? The brand experience, the, the service experience, everything. And then I think people, you, you, like I mentioned, right? Even designers sometimes too narrow-minded when they think about UX, then they just think about, oh, it's just screens, it's just you know interaction, but it's way more than that. So Julie, I want to bring you in here a little bit because we, we've had conversations about aged care and right across the world, there's been basically aged care should have been known as aged harm. Mm-hmm. You know, the most likely person that, uh, to die from COVID was somebody in aged care. The, the rate of their deaths is phenomenal compared to anywhere else. And so it wasn't actually about them and their comorbidities. It wasn't about them and their age. It was actually the situation that, or the setting, as people like to refer to it, it was the setting that they were in where there was transmission and that there were, there were problems about how did they go get secondary care after they got their initial infection. That That's changed dramatically because if I go look at charts that show infections in different regions and I see deaths, probably the area that's had the greatest change has been aged care. So therefore, there must have been an understanding that their purpose was to actually care, not harm people. There was a need to go change practices that were there. Is that something that you're aware of, that there was reluctance to do that? Or did people say obviously we're not doing the right thing here and there's a wake-up call, let's get on with it. Aged care in Australia particularly has had such a bad rap the last two years that has instigated a Royal Commission that anyone who is reluctant to to change or improve would be on, on the outer blocks. 
it's, you know, and COVID has highlighted all the things that um, that were necessary as well. You have frontline workers who are not healthcare workers who are carers. It is near impossible to care for anyone in an aged care home and do social distancing. It's, it's impossible. And in some homes, the newer homes are a different story because most most of the newer homes you have your own your own room, your own ensuite. But the older homes still exist in the old format of twin shared, triple shared, sometimes even quad shared. So you get one person with COVID, and and you're going to have massive problems. So there's a care issue, there's a pandemic issue, there's a um, lack of resources issue, Um, there's a funding issue, Um, there's government issues related to all of that, but not necessarily it's all the government's issue either. You know, a lot of them are private operators, et cetera. So it highlighted a series of what was bad to start off with and just didn't seem to get better. But, you know, I'm optimistic in that, you know, when when you're down there, you've got nowhere else but but to go but up. There's there's massive room for improvement, and, and we we do things so so well here. Probably not not as well as we could, but we do do it well in comparison to some other countries. And I maintain that we are getting better at it, but probably not at the pace I'd like it like to see it. But you know, that sounds like an area really need to bring everyone along and everyone to contribute to solving that problem. It's just too complex. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not just one entity can. No, it's not. and you know, and if we talk about you know what's ahead, you know, there's there's a demographic moving forward that's not going to accept how it is now. You know, we we all talk about baby boomers on many levels. Well, baby boomers are not going to accept how seniors living is at how it is at the moment, nor aged care. Um, you know, the expectations are higher. The demands are going to be higher. So there has to be some radical transformations for sure. Yeah, I, got, I wanted to ask, sorry, just ask a quick, sorry. You said the baby boomers and senior care. I'm wondering if, like the W Hotel brand, which is appealing to an older mm-hmm. generation, will there be DJs in the aged care homes or as, as party people who like to party all the time? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm waiting for rappers. The rappers in there, you know, you're uh, the mother, uh, you know, like what songs are they going to sing along to in aged care homes? Well, that's it, isn't it? Like I'm a, I'm a bit of an '80s girl, and so by that stage, I mean it's yeah. I, I don't know. Bring the disco out, I say. <laughs> Simon LeBon is doing um, sing-alongs in aged care homes. So I think that's it. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> Richard, I, Richard, I want to go across to you because if I remember right, twelve or eighteen months ago, you picked up a rebranding, repositioning for an aged care brand, and that they rolled it out there. How did this function about purpose and understanding, you know, the, where they were heading to and what they were doing? Was that part of the investigation that you did as you as you explored it? You know, I'd imagine that's your first call. Well, there were two organisations coming together and so there's a cultural issue and there, there were care systems and, uh, um, you know, process systems within both of those two that we brought together as one. Uh, and then, of course, there's the idea of um, the culture of the, of, the, of, the, of the homes or the, the residences themselves. And what we, what we really needed to do you know, negotiate all those uh, issues, which Julie would be well aware of, the sense of ownership of certain things and the way we do things around here, et cetera, had to be put to a bigger picture because their view for the longer term is to develop and become development of uh, retirement homes 
uh, which would end up by being aged care places, etc. So, yeah, I mean, the, the for us on that particular job, we had to bring it to much very much empathy and care, and then the. We created the brand and the identity itself that could then be expressed out into the environment. So it had some colours and things in it. They then brought things like donuts in the same colours, uniforms were in different colours. So everything sort of had a human aspect about it. I think that's probably what Julie's talking about is also, and Adrian to a degree, is this idea of humanity uh, and design assisting humanity and for people to understand why are they there and what is the sort of what is what what is the what is the methodology of thinking that makes that particular hotel or that particular retirement centre different from the rest? And that's where you know I think um, we talked about this some time ago, Mark, where we did the work which was appropriate for the actual environment itself, for the company itself. It wasn't a, a whiz bang, but it was a if I say so myself, it was an outstanding solution. I do back myself in my work, Mark, as you know. Uh, but it was actually because it actually got embraced. And they loved it. And they don't know why they loved it, but they just loved it. And I think that's because it became relatable and they felt that and, the and things meant something to them. And you're, you're right on the money there. Like, you know, relatable is such an important thing. You know, Adrian mentioned the, the different position that, say, the W Hotel has. You've got, you know, if you go in the companies like the Accor brand, they've got, you know, a whole portfolio in there. You... There's multiple examples in hotels where the hospitality industry has understood the various strata that's in there. Same thing with aged care, that there's various stratas that are in there. But the important thing is that you've got to work out how to you know, and actually take people with you on these journeys, not do the breakthrough. And I think a lot of us have seen some things to do with COVID which have actually been trying to, they've bro- they tried to break through and they forgot to bring everybody along and so that they fell very quickly. And the politicians were particularly bad at doing that because they were trying to go for the quick the quick media grab rather than actually the hard slog. Um, the Premier of the State of Victoria stood up for over 100 days and did a briefing of how many infections, how many people had died, what the circumstance was in the state, any questions from the media. And by the end of it, we were looking at the media and you're going, you're asking just stupid questions of the Premier of a state because he he fronted up and he said, I'm going to have transparency and I'm going to be present. I'm going to bring all of you along with everything. But that that, that didn't accommodate a lot of the people who were traumatised. There were a lot of people whose businesses were interrupted. There were a lot of people who actually couldn't come along on the journey and now we're trying to work out how to bring them through. Bringing everybody along is a complex process because you come from different ideologies. You also have different triggers that have taken place, that people feel lost and that they have anxiety. It takes quite a lot to go through a lot of these changes here. Team, this has been a, a really interesting conversation. We've gone from digital transformation and what uh, and what's going on there, aged care. We've talked about the purpose in brands. We've talked about how buffets have changed into being shared plates with families in there. But what is interesting is that by using the process of design, we've been able to go and actually see that there's a rapid transformation that's taken place, that it's understood why that transformation is taking place and we've also got an idea what that path forward might be. So thank you very much for sharing that. I'm about to go wrap up. I'm going to go, I'm doing this like an auctioneer now. Are there any final comments? Are there any, you know, is there something that we've touched on that you'd like to go a bit deeper on? Or do you think actually, as would happen with those shared meal plates, are we finished? 
I noticed they sung here, Mark. Did here yeah, got, please. With the way the pictures are set up here, we've got myself on the far left and we've got Julie on the far right. We all know that as we're going, whatever purpose we have, whatever we think about, in the end, we're going to end up in, Ju- in Julie's court. In the age section, down the back, could be in a retirement <laughs> somewhere else, but the transition is quite clear on the little screen here of how it's all going to eventually end, no matter what we say. <laughs> well, let's say if... If, if that's actually the prediction, I'm sure that Zoom is going to change around the order in the recording. So I think that, that's really sweet there. But, but it is right. You know, we know that we're heading to a form of residential accommodation that we need to think about. And, Adrian, as much as we'd like to be in one of your hotels, it's not going to be there. It's more likely we're going to be in an aged care facility that Julie or one of her colleagues is pulling together. So I think we've all got a bit of a vested interest to make sure that we get that part of the transformation in and uplift done, but there's so many other parts that all we also need to attend to. Thank you very much, everybody, for your time. I'm always humbled to go have your minds and being able to go and actually walk around some ideas and topics. It's such a pleasure to do this. Uh, our next town hall, number 33, is uh, 33 and a third, it probably should be, should be about the music industry, is going to be in, a, in the Australian market. That's a week away. Um, viewers, there's uh, show notes, there's links, and uh, make sure you do the subscribe and like and all of those wonderful things. Panellists, thank you for your time, and uh, we'll see you again next time we're in your market. Thank you. Thank you.